Well, a man was out walking his dog one night and he came across uh, a person who was about ready to jump off of a bridge and he, and he looked at him and he said, stop, don't do it. And the guy said, why not? I have nothing to live for. And the man replied, well, well, sure you do. You are loved by God. Are you a religious person? And the man said, yes. And he goes, me too. Or are you a Christian? And the man said, yes. And he said, me too. Or are you, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And the man said, Protestant. And he said, me too. And he said, are you Baptist or Methodist? And the man said, well, I'm, I'm Baptist. <gasps> me too. And the, and the guy just feels like, man, I'm making a connection with this guy. I am going to save his life. And so he goes on and he says, are, are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of the Lord? Well, I'm Baptist Church of God. The man said, me too. Are you, are you Baptist Church of God Reformation uh, 1879 or Baptist Church of God Reformation 1915. And the man said, well, I'm Baptist Church of God Reformation 1915, to which he looked at him and said, die, heretic, and pushed him off of the bridge. <laughs> Sometimes things are funny because they're true and we have to like laugh to keep from crying. Um, there are roughly 41,000 denominations not, not religions, denominations, like parts and pieces and of, the, of the church, divisions of the church that, were, that are built. I mean, and all of them are built upon that confession of faith that Peter made last week that we looked at, that Jesus said, yes, upon that rock, uh, upon that confession, my church will be built, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Most of those 41,000 hold that belief to be true, but then there's all of these other things that they've allowed to get in the way. And so now we've got 41,000 different denominations. And the sad part is, is that most of our differences come down to uh, one of two things. One is our preferences, what we like, what we don't like. And sometimes we have a way of making our preferences like the same authority as scripture. And if you don't like what I like, then you're wrong and I'm right. Um, sometimes the differences between us come down to what we would look at and say, well, those are kind of non-essentials of the faith, meaning that they're kind of, of gray areas in scripture, places where, where people in reasonable minds can look at the, the same text, do the same amount of research, and walk away with two very different opinions on what that text is saying. There, there are places in scripture that are black and white and clear as day, those essentials of the faith, but then those non-essentials where people can walk away with two different opinions, oftentimes they make the non-essential essential and say, well, unless you believe like I believe in every single one of these things, then man, we can't be in, in fellowship with one another. Or I'm gonna take my ball and I'm gonna go and create a new court over here to, to play in. And that's why I love the heart of the restoration movement. I mean, you look at that and you think, yeah, there's no, it's no surprise that there are 41,000 different denominations. There's so much division around people who are to be united in the faith. And the restoration movement started with this, this plea, this heart, this, this idea of, of just to, to drop the, the denominational labels that divide us and let's just be Christians and Christians only. That, that's the heart of the restoration movement, this, this non-denomination <laughs> denomination. Let's just be Christians and Christians only. Let's not be known by our sub-label, but by the one that really matters, by, by Christ. 
not Baptist or Lutheran or Pentecostal or any of the other 41,000 denominations. Let's be Christians and Christians only. That was one of the mottos that shaped this early movement. And they also rallied around this idea that we are Christians, but we're not the only Christians. Meaning that Baptists and Lutherans and even Nazarenes are Christians as well. And we, we rally around the things that matter most, even if we see some things a little differently sometimes. That you don't have to be one of us or belong to us to be a true Christ follower. But maybe one of my favorite rallying cries of the restoration movement is, is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. In other words, we will unite around the essentials of the faith, those things that we have in common where scripture is clear, God being the creator and the sustainer of the world, Jesus, his son who lived and died as a substitute for our sin and was raised back to life, the the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, salvation through Christ alone, we will unite on these essential beliefs that we have in common instead of dividing around the non-essential things that maybe we don't. There's a sense of liberty amongst one another for that. And at the end of the day, no matter what, no matter what, we are going to love one another because one, that's what scripture teaches us to do. And two, it's what Jesus prayed for us to do. And so we can hold different beliefs about things like spiritual gifts and end times and how God created the world and yet still be in fellowship with one another, still love and support one another. That's kind of the heartbeat of the the restoration movement, the Christian church. And I say all of that, okay, this is a long setup to what I'm about to say right now. I have dear friends that will disagree with what I preach today. I have friends in the faith, friends that I love, friends that I have stood and continue to stand shoulder to shoulder in ministry with, friends that, that I don't say this lightly, I weighed this statement uh, several times this week, that, that I would literally lay my life down for, I love them that much, that will not agree with what I'm preaching today. They, they come at it from a different angle. We, we read the same passages and we have two different opinions on how to interpret them and, and how to, to apply them. But I know for me, and I think that they would say for them too, that they hold these things as non-essentials of the faith. And so there's some liberty that we can have. And, and that doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't like have you know, core conviction of what we believe. It just means that we're not going to hold on to it so much to where we say, oh, I'm not really sure that you're a follower of Jesus if you don't believe exactly like I believe on, on this. So if you are curious about what we're talking about this morning, (laughs) if you're not, I didn't do my job very well, but uh, open up to Matthew chapter 22. Today we are looking at one of the most uh, divisive and talked about topics in Christianity. We're talking about election and predestination. Mention of those two words send shivers down the spines of most theologians and uh, they carry a lot of weight and even more uh, baggage. And to oversimplify the discussion, uh, most people on this fall into one or or two camps. 
You have Calvinists in one camp who believe that God elects or chooses those who will be saved and those who won't, that he predestined them before time to either be objects of his love or his wrath. And so when someone finds salvation in Jesus, it's because the sovereignty of God had already determined that they would, that that his grace was so irresistible to them that they couldn't help but make that decision to find faith in him. But, but any step that they take towards Jesus was already determined by the Father that they would take that step towards him. In the other camp, you have Arminians, and, and they believe that God invites all people to be saved, and the choice is up to the person to either accept that invitation or reject it, to, to accept or reject God's free gift of grace through Jesus. They believe that humans have free will. And it's up to the individual whether or not they will follow Jesus. And the truth is, is that scriptural arguments can be made on both sides. Calvinists will point to the fact that, well, God God elected, God chose Israel, called them up as his nation amongst all of the other nations. That was God's choice. Paul seems to point to that even in in Romans chapter 9 and 10. They point to Jesus choosing the 12, the use of Paul and especially Ephesians 1 and other places of those words, election and predestination of the believer. Arminians can point to passages about God loving the world, about wanting all to be saved and none to perish. The the Arminian view, and, and if you're curious, is the view that I tend to align with a little bit more, can be summed up in in this. God predestined the plan, not the person. God predestined the plan, not the person. God predestined the plan for salvation, not the person for salvation. That before creation, God predestined his plan to save the world through Jesus and choose to save those who put their faith in him. Everyone is invited to receive God's grace and those who choose to put their faith in Jesus, to to clothe themselves in in his righteousness are God's elect, his chosen ones who are saved by his predetermined plan to rescue the world through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. I can't help but think that's at the heart of the story that Jesus tells today. I want to kind of set the scene before we dive into our text. Again, it's Matthew chapter 22. Context before content, like Gary mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's so key to biblical interpretation. And Jesus tells the story on the heels of an argument that he had with the Pharisees, these, these religious leaders that, that, felt like, um, that felt like they kind of controlled the list of who can enter into the kingdom of God. That, that God's throwing this party, but they're standing at the door as the bouncer saying, yeah, you can come in or no, you've, you've got you've to go. And so if you didn't act like them or dress like them or worship like them, then you probably weren't invited like them. But Jesus, I believe, tells this story to teach them and us that everyone is invited into the, the kingdom of God. Let's, let's look at it together. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. As Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. 
Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murders and burned their city. So Jesus tells this story about a, a king throwing a party for his son. And, and again, some historical context here. The custom was for these, uh, these Eastern banquets, uh, especially for a royal banquet, banquet like this, uh, would be for, um, for the, the invite to go out to people long before preparations were made. That everyone would receive the invitation, have a chance to, to RSVP, say, yes, I'll be there, or no, sorry, I, I can't make it. And then they would all come back and, and they would prepare for the party. And once everything was ready, they would send the servants back out and say, okay, party's ready, let's go. And Jesus is telling this parable. It's this, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It was his favorite way of teaching. And so these stories that he would tell kind of teach us something, show us something about what God is like, what the kingdom of heaven is, is like. And so in this story, there's a deeper meaning, like in all of his parables. And so God is the king, and Jesus is the son, and the nation of Israel are the first guests that are invited to the banquet. They're invited by God through prophets and through teachers of the Old Testament. And many of them were mistreated, ignored, some of them even killed. And because of the betrayal against God, Israel found themselves in exile. It's kind of pointing back that last verse that we looked at. But now Jesus is here. The, the, the sun has arrived. The banquet is ready. And so the king sends out the final invitations to come. And yet again, they refuse. And the king can't have an empty banquet. And so he tells his servants, go out, invite anyone and everyone. Verse eight, he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king's like, go out and invite everyone, people that, that the religious leaders probably would have been standing there looking at them going, what are you doing here? You don't, you don't belong here. And the king is like, now welcome them in. And I love, love, love this part of the story because listen, unless you come from Jewish descent, this is our invitation to the party. This is our invitation to the banquet. Jesus is saying that a time is gonna come when the gospel message will move out of Israel into the entire world. And we see that happen in, in the book of Acts. And everyone is gonna be invited to come in. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are from. The invitation is open. The Father has invited everyone to the feast. But don't miss that word right there. It's an important word. The nature of this call is an invitation. It's an invitation to come. This isn't a summons for jury duty. 
which we all enjoy to get, don't we? (laughs) This isn't a draft for military deployment. This is an invitation. And by nature, invitations can be accepted or they can be rejected. When God invites us to find life in Jesus, he does not coerce us. He does not manipulate us to come. In fact, there are several places in the gospels where where Jesus has amassed this large crowd of people around him. And then he says something about the cost of discipleship. He says something about what it really means to follow him. And the crowd looks and they're like, nope, that's too much. And they walk off. They make the choice to leave. And what we find is is Jesus doesn't run after them going, oh, no, 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 no. Hey, I I know that was a a little harsh. I'll, I'll try to tone it down next time. It won't really cost you that much. It's just something I have to say. He doesn't water down the the cost of following him. His invitation is simply, come, follow me if you want to find true life. And so God's invitation and his call is to come to him. And it is an invitation that is open to all. But here's here's the thing. We We can't miss this. We can only come on his terms, not our own. God's invitation to come is is open to everyone, but we have to come on his terms. What what Jesus is not teaching in this this passage is is what's known as universalism, that, that, well, you know, all roads kind of lead to the same place. It doesn't matter what God you worship, just as long as you're a good person, do good things and try to make a difference in this world, like, that's okay. You know, God's welcoming everybody to the banquet and all can come in. No, that, what, what Jesus is teaching us here is that, yes, God's call is an invitation for all, but we have to come on his terms, not our own. And and God makes his terms very clear. I don't believe that God predestines the person, but he did predestine his plan of salvation through Christ alone. And I think that's what Jesus gets at at the next part, verse 11. Kind of the culmination of the event, the king comes in to see the guest And he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Again, I think some cultural context is is important here. At royal parties like this, during this time, the the one who's throwing the wedding feast would provide garments for the guests to wear. It's kind of the wedding garments. And so everyone was invited. When they came, they would change into the wedding garments, and then the party would would begin. But the, the king comes in here, and he finds this man without those garments on. Look at what he says in verse 12. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is going on here? Essentially, this man refused to wear the wedding garments that had been provided to him. He, he wanted to come to the party on his own terms. He knew what was expected. He had seen everyone, everyone else change into that, but he's like, no, I, I don't want to do that. I'm very comfortable in what I have on. And, and so he chose to come into the party on his own terms, his own way. But the king had already determined how people could get into the party. Everyone's invited, but but you have to come this way to the party. And so even though he was invited, he tried to enter into it on his own terms, not the king's, and was thrown out. 
I think the point that Jesus makes here is important for us. In fact, not only do I think that it is at the heart of this parable that he tells, I think it's at the heart of the gospel. You see, the wedding garment is a picture of the gift of righteousness that the Lord gives to those who come with no righteousness of their own, which is every single one of us. We cannot come to the Father on our own, dressed in our own good works, dressed in our own good deeds, our own righteousness. We have to be clothed with Christ. We have to take on a righteousness apart from ourselves as we come into the presence of the Father. Those religious things that we do, thinking that somehow we earn or, or even deserve our salvation. Isaiah 64, 6 says that they are like filthy rags before the Father. And so Jesus is teaching us that everyone is invited to the kingdom, but we must clothe ourselves with Christ and his righteousness if we want to come in dressed in our own works and righteous behavior. We will not stand a chance and we will be kicked out of the party, but by grace, God has provided a righteousness apart from ourselves And when we put our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Scripture tells us that we are then clothed with Christ and welcomed in. By grace, you have been invited to the party. And by grace, our King has made every provision necessary for us to come in. So that is God's predestined plan for salvation. All who choose to come to the party clothed in Christ and his righteousness are the elected ones chosen to come in. And I think, I think that's what he's getting at there in verse 14, our, our core verse for the week. It says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. M- many are invited, but few will humble themselves, recognize their need for a savior and follow Jesus. Few will, will, will turn and, and, and repent from their sin, from their past. Few will, will turn from what they feel is right or what feels good to them and, and they'll try to find their own way to the Father. Few, few are chosen. The Father has invited everyone to the feast. His invitation is to come to him, but we can only come on his terms and not our own. Terms that he established in Christ before the creation of the world for how he would choose to save those who follow him. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just want to ask, where are you in this parable? Do you find yourself like the first group that received the invitation, maybe ignoring it? Maybe this morning kind of caught up in, in your own thing, caught up in work or hobbies, even your family, and you've prioritized those things above God. Maybe for you, God is calling you to reprioritize your life and to take his call, to take his invitation to be in relationship with him seriously. Are you trying to clothe yourselves in good works? Hoping, praying that God will love you enough if you just do enough good things that he will love you enough to to let you in. 
And maybe today you need to be reminded that the cross is enough, that there is nothing that we can add to our salvation. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us any more or any less than he already loves us right now. I tell my girls that each and every day, and I tell them that because it is a message that I need to hear myself as well. You are saved by grace alone, and God loves you, not because of what you do for him, but because you are his child, clothed in Christ, set apart for his plans and his purposes, and you can rest in him today knowing that God loves you and he is for you. Or maybe you're here today and you feel like there is no way that God could love you after where you've been or what you've done, that there is no way that you can stand before him. And you wanna know what? You're right. None of us can. Not a single one of us can do it. But praise be to God that it is not up to us to earn our salvation. You've been invited to come to the Father and he has made a way through Jesus for you to come. And when you put your life and faith in him, Your sin is forgiven and you are welcomed with open arms by the Father who loves you and has invited you, even you, to come to him. And the truth is, is that each one of us are powerless on our own to attain salvation, but God made a way through Jesus. Will you respond to his invitation to come? Would you stand with me and I'll close this with a word of prayer. And as we close out our service, we're going to sing one more song. And at the end, as we dismiss and everyone's heading that way, if you are ready to take your next step, if you're ready to surrender to him, to be baptized, we want to help you make that decision before you go. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for your unmerited favor. We cannot earn it. Lord, there is nothing that we can do to deserve it. And yet, God, even before we took our first breath, even before we turned against you for that first time, you already decided that you were going to save us through Jesus when we put our faith in him. And so thank you for the promise that Paul gives us in Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that when we put our faith in you and, and, and your desire that, that everyone should find life, that none should perish, and when we put our faith in you, you give us that life that we so desperately desire and are looking for. God, awaken our hearts once more to your grace and to your mercy and your goodness. Lord, have your way in us. Draw us close to you. Thank you, God, for not only inviting us into your kingdom, but making a way for us to get there in Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.